Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Scott Alford. He is one of the top online business mentors and advisors, and he also owns dozens of businesses that have collectively generated tens of millions of dollars. And this done in multiple niches, countries across the world, and so forth. In his new Investing with Scott newsletter, he gives you a behind-the-scenes look into acquiring, building, and scaling businesses based on his experience of helping hundreds of entrepreneurs scale all the way up to seven and eight figures. As an entrepreneur, since he was seven, and by the time he was 16, having a million-dollar business, while ending up a million in debt and now by 31 becoming a decamillionaire, he has a massive amount of insights, understandings, knowledge, and wisdom for scaling and building a business. You can now check what he's up to by going into investing.scottalford.com. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super exciting founder that we have today. You know, we're going to be talking about bootstrapping for quite a while, doing a side hustle with multiple jobs, you know, until, you know, now, you know, like he's saying, really building something meaningful, you know, a rocket ship. So uh, also, you know, I find that the way that he engineered, you know, the um, the way that he's been going about deal making with his business is also quite unique. But again, I don't want to make anyone wait any longer. So let's welcome our guest today, Tim Creswick. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alejandro. Uh, great to be on. So originally born in, in, in Cambridge, uh, but you moved quite a bit, you know, Switzerland, then back. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, so um, it's it's something that, that we dig into a little bit in therapy is that I don't have tons of memories before the age of five or six, and I have no idea why that is, but uh, maybe maybe someone can write in and tell me. But but yeah, so so I predominantly grew up in, in Switzerland until I was I was 12 years old, um, and that was an interesting experience being a, an English kid. My, my mom's English, my dad's Canadian, um, but I went to an American international school, so my education was really in the American, in the, in the, in the U.S. system uh, to the age of 12. And uh, I think my, my parents uh, kind of thought it would be a great idea to move back to the UK to, to do to sort of prepare for higher education in the UK. It's, it's kind of hard to do that as an expat. So so a lot of that experience early on was was um, I often tell people I've, I've spent a lot of my life feeling like an outsider. 
And how do you think that, you know, feeling that thing, like out of place, how do you think that shaped your personality? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one. I was like, just thinking about this, doing this, this call with you and, and doing this podcast with you. And, and I was reflecting on, I, I call it kind of the sanitization paradox, right? Which is like the, the, the hard things we go through that kind of make us stronger. Um, you know, I, I, I vividly remember coming home from school in, in coming home from high school in, in tears some days, like, and, and then you think back and you're like, well, it's, it's made me a much stronger person, right? Like it's made me care a lot less about what people think. Um, I had a much easier time in the early days set running my business when nobody around me understood, um, why I would be motivated to do it or why I want to do it. You know, I wasn't really too concerned about what people think. And I think it, it, it adds that resilience. It creates that resilience. So, you know, I don't have children, but, but I often think like if I did, it would be a real struggle to know, you know, how much, how much kind of difficulty would you want them to experience to build that resilience um, versus, you know, how much would you want to protect them and, and, and make sure they don't, they don't have to feel that discomfort. So I, I don't know, I guess is the simple, simple answer. Now, in your case, I mean, at 13, you were already experiencing with uh, starting businesses. You know, what were you doing at 13? Well, yeah, so this is a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, being a, an expat kid in, in Switzerland, you, you never really, you don't need an, an allowance, right? Like you're never going out and uh, you're never really going out on your own um, and, and spending money. So um, moving back to the UK, it, it quickly became, you know, suddenly I had like a whole world of things I could actually do on weekends and, and, uh, and, and after school. And, uh, and my brother and I kind of went to my parents and said, Hey, we, we need an allowance. Um, and, and my parents suggested that we, uh, we, we kind of ask around at school and find out what, um, you know, kind of find out what, what allowance people get, how much pocket money they get. And, um, I guess we were both like very straight laced and very honest. And we, we went and conducted a bit of a survey and came back like a week later and, and said, Hey, look, we've asked around we, you know, these are, these are the numbers. And, um, I guess we'd assumed quite naively going in that my parents would pick kind of the average. Um, and of course what they did was pick, pick a number that was lower than the lowest number they had, uh, because they, they, you know, they said they didn't want us to, uh, to be spoiled. So you know, there we were with like very little pocket money. My brother basically figured out how to make do with that. Um, I was kind of frustrated. And so I, I suddenly was highly motivated to try and make some money. And I don't remember exactly how it came about, but I essentially started mowing the neighbor's lawn and then the next neighbor's lawn and then the next one after that. And very quickly, I was mowing every single lawn in the neighborhood. And, uh, and actually, in in many cases, um, I was doing it twice a week. So this was the, as, as some of my colleagues like to joke, my first attempt at growth hacking, um, figuring out very very quickly at the age of thirteen that uh, the, the 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 thing that everyone kind of a lot of people don't don't realize about a, a simple blade of grass is the the longer the blade of grass, the the more of it that, that attracts sunlight and the more photosynthesis and the faster it grows. So if you cut the blade of grass while it's short, it doesn't have time and it doesn't grow as fast. And so there's less grass to cut. And so the trick was, if you could convince people to let you cut their grass twice a week, it was way, way quicker to do than, uh, than, than having, to, having to come back once a week. And, and you, know, you could obviously make 
twice as much money. So um, I didn't have to quite go as far. Um, and, it, and it created a, a slightly uncomfortable situation because I think um, this was quite lucrative. I would get home from school. I would mow two or three lawns every single day. And, and I was making hundreds of pounds a month, um, which was, I think, I think like two orders of magnitude over what my, what my parents thought was, the, was a good allowance. That's amazing. Now, in your case, you know, you ended up going to Oxford and you studied engineering and computer science. So what would you say that got you into, into that, you know, type of um, subject? Uh, it was actually through the law mowing I'd been, I, I, that was the first time I built any software. So uh, it all kind of connects through in this in this really weird way, and as it often does when you look back on on things. But um, I uh, I realized very early on that to get to get people to pay my bills, you know, when I started out, I would just write a little receipt, stick it through the letterbox, um, you know, and it was three pounds, would believe it or not, to per lawn. Uh, it didn't matter how big it was, so there was a, a slight flaw in the business plan, um, and and people would take sometimes six, nine, ten weeks to pay. And I figured out really quickly, if you gave them a printed bill, an invoice, then they would pay you almost immediately. Um, so uh, as a kind of fun project, I was, you know, I'd been chatting to a school teacher. I think I had a book on, on basic and, and I, I wrote in, in MS basic, I, I wrote a really, really simple billing application and I would get home from school. I would start it up. I'd press the button, print out three invoices and then go and mow the lawn, stick the invoice to the letterbox. So it was it was kind of at that point that I first started playing with software, and that that stuck with me. I was uh, I learned I taught myself to code. I was building websites when I was kind of sixteen. I I did loads of other kind of stuff around around that space, and then all the way through university, I was I was really coding to pay my bills. Um, so uh, I you know I built some online stores for like a photography company and a few other things. Um, I actually built a, a an EPOS system, a point of sale system for some of the bars at university. That combined with just a, always a fascination with how things work um, meant I, I kind of always knew that engineering was the direction I wanted to go in. Uh, computer science was a way to um, to actually make the engineering easier for me, anyway. When I when I elected to do that, it meant I didn't have to spend as much time doing thermodynamics. So um, so it was kind of a a big win for me. Now, in your case, I mean, you you probably have one of the longest side hustles that I have seen in in quite a while. I mean, it it took you quite a bit to really make the jump, uh, but you know, obviously now you know you're 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 full blown, you know, with the company. But walk us through how was that process like? Because I mean, you were working as a part time CTO for quite some time until finally everything crystallized. So I guess you know, as part of those sequence of events. How did the idea, you know, come to you? And then what was that process like of, of, of combining so many, like, things in parallel for so long? Yeah, it's from the outside, it looks like. So the business is, um, is coming up to 17 years old now. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a long and exhausting journey. And, you know, in that lifetime of the business, we've probably had two or three major pivots as well. So it's kind of difficult because on the from the outside, it, it looks a lot like this sort of sudden success, as, as is often the case. But the reality, of course, is like, there are so many blind alleys you go down, there are so many things you try, like it's, you know, and I, and I often kind of have to give this advice to people is like, you know, one of the probably one of the great features of a, of a good founder entrepreneur mentality is like something fails, and you just go, huh, okay, next thing. And like, w within within like, 
I don't know, two minutes of having understood that something has fully failed, um, you're already thinking of what's next um, and, and packaging up that learning and moving forward. And I think, you know, what's missing in that journey, of course, is no evidence of all the stuff that went wrong. Um, and, and so, yeah, there was a lot of time of just trying things and trying things and trying things. And, and where we are now is the product of, of then having, having really been just in the perfect position at the right time with all the right knowledge, having, we've, having built it up and then having been able to match that with finance. I, I often describe the last three years or so of the business, last three, four years as, as having like threaded a needle. You know, I sat there one evening when it really kind of, when, when I really figured out what, what the opportunity was and, and you look at it and it's like this impossible, you know, it's a little bit like when they talk about, you know, on the, those Apollo missions, the re-entry, the, the window of like, the, of, 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 of the approach back to earth of, of like being like trying to, trying to, um, trying to bring a spaceship into something as, as thin as a piece of paper, if you were to hold it up across a room, you know, and, and it's, it sounds impossible, but as you you constantly adjust as you get closer and closer and closer and closer. And, and, you know, and we've, and we've, we've achieved it, but, um, you know, a lot of people said what we've done in the last three years would be absolutely impossible. Now let's talk about that moment where finally there's no more side hustle. You know, this is, this is now real, you know, it's, it's, it's full time, full time, time to rock on. So how did that happen? Well, so, so, I mean, I, to be fair, like I, I've been, this is, this has been my full-time job now for, uh, at least eight years. Um, I did have, uh, in the early days, so, you know, to give you a sort of brief history, right. Um, I started the company as a software business. Um, the idea originally was that we would, we would essentially be like a software consultancy again, bearing in mind it was 2006. So it was a really different world back then. And we did okay at that. Um, but, but never made any money. It's a really hard you know, ultimately, you're just a consultancy, it's it's dollars for hours. And and ultimately, the success of the business falls down to like a resource matrix. Um, it's, it's, it's not actually the business I thought I was in. Um, and I'll, I'll skip through several years of, of discovery, but we essentially ended up realizing that there was a huge opportunity to be very, very good at providing fiber connectivity to businesses. And I suppose that's kind of the the, 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 probably should have mentioned this earlier, right? Like that's, that is now what I spend, you know, 20 hours a day thinking about, but, uh, but yeah, so the, the, the fiber connectivity business is huge. And obviously the, the big transition in the last 10 years, if you think of 2012 to 2022 is the way in which we depend on connectivity has been, um, transformed, but transformed in a way that was, you know, th to use the, the sort of, um, to use the metaphor sort of bought, you know, like, like boiling a frog, right? Like we've, we've ended up in a world where if I pull your connectivity, like you cannot do what you do, but, but we kind of got there little by little over 10 years. Um, and, um, and that's true for you. It's true for almost every business that, that we see and particularly in, 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 uh, you know, places like central London. So, so that's, that's been my main focus prior to that. Um, you know, I wasn't drawing, I was, I was drawing a very, very small salary from the business. It was always reinvest, reinvest the profit. You know, the, the business was bootstrapped with, with really very, very little funding early on. Um, and then we always just reinvested our profits for the first, first 15 years. That was the model. Um, and so, uh, at the very bottom of the list of things we paid for, it was my salary. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I had these opportunities to do a, a few, a few other like part-time CTO roles. Um, and those were the things that, that kind of paid the bills. So for the people that are listening to really understand the business model of Borbos, what, what, what ended up being the, the model? How do you guys make money? So uh, where, where the real growth came from is, is off the back a little bit of a, a regulatory change and an opportunity that, that, that presented in London. But it's actually super simple. London is, uh, you know, like any major city, a, 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 huge, a huge economy. It's predominantly a knowledge economy, um, which means that it's businesses and offices that are where, where fiber is really the first utility. Um, and, you know, COVID's actually really demonstrated that, right? Like for knowledge workers, um, and, you know, you'd be a great example here. Um, you're someone who's still been able to do what you do um, from really anywhere as long as you had, as long as you had two things like your brain and connectivity. And so really, very fundamentally, we are a business to business, uh, internet service provider, and, and, and asset owning fiber owner. Um, so, uh, so the key is we, we build and operate um, a massive fiber optic network in central London. And we use that to connect um, the most demanding businesses uh, in the city. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, in life, you know, there's not a user manual. You don't know what works for you, what's normal, uh, when you're feeling stuck, navigating some of the changes that you may be experiencing, like maybe you're looking at giving your notice and becoming an entrepreneur. Whatever that is, you know, having a therapist, you know, can really be helpful. And they're trained to help you in figuring out what's causing those challenging emotions and also, you, you get to learn, you know, with coping skills. I mean, in my case, for example, wherever I felt stuck or wherever I needed someone to coach me through it, I literally, you know, like had someone there, you know, helping me and learning with coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, whatever that was. So as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime, and it couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, for you guys, you know, it's been an interesting, you know, also moment in time, you know, when it comes to the transactional side. I mean, you guys 
uh, recently did a, a corporate round, uh, sort of speak, and you know, also very unique, you know, in the way that uh, that, that was done. You know? so can you walk us through how that happened, and uh, you know, what was that process like, and the experience of going through that? Yeah, sure. So. It's always really interesting, right? Because my I have I spend a lot of time like with with uh, with startups in the tech scene, and obviously with software development skills. You spend a lot of time like networking that space. I've been involved in startups, and and you know early on it was always like I would go to startup networking things because it's partly how you how you stop feeling like an outsider, right? Like just being around people who are doing similar things. Um, and in that community, you know, we we ended up raising. Um, a little over 250 million pounds. So at the time, uh, you know, 330 million US. Um, it's a huge amount of money in like a startup world. You know, the company was 25 people when we did that. But we're in infrastructure, right? So in infrastructure, it's a little bit different. And this is like, this is kind of, in infrastructure, a pretty normal amount of money to be dealing with. Um, you know, people forget that every week, uh, there's a billion dollar infrastructure transaction happening somewhere globally. It's just that no one ever hears about it. They're often, you know, uh, cell tower companies or, or um, hyperscale data centers, uh, fiber assets, um, telcos. It's, it's all the stuff that like most people just aren't super interested in and never really hear about. So, um, so, so the real challenge is the transaction is kind of unique when you look at it as a, like a, a small business or a startup or on a tech scale. Um, but it's actually kind of unique in infrastructure, not in terms of the size, but because the biggest challenge is that no one really invests in what I would describe as seed infrastructure. So finding an investor that that was willing to um, was willing to 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 work with us to actually build an asset and take on some development risk um, was probably the the biggest challenge there. So you know when you think about those transactions that happen every week globally and they're then they're they're massive, right? Um, uh, they are typically massive infrastructure funds. You know, they they will be in the scale of sort of ten billion dollar plus funds as a minimum. Um, they'll be doing billion dollar ticket size transactions, but they'll be backed typically with um, like pension fund money. And the requirement is that they can they can trade assets. They can buy and sell infrastructure assets, which will typically be uh, data centers, cell towers, fiber. Um, and other kind of telco uh, telco stuff, right? Um, increasingly, a lot of five G infrastructure. So they can buy and sell those assets, and that's kind of the basis upon which they raise their funds. What they can't do is take their fund and use it to to create an asset. That's seen as quite risky. Whereas obviously the assets themselves are very low risk. Um, they provide very stable returns, and they're quite low risk. So so that was always the challenge. Is is um, how do you how do you match the funding with with um, with an ability to go and actually create one of these assets? And so, a little bit of this has led to some underinvestment, right? It means that doing what we've done is super unusual. Like these 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 massive assets tend to just get bigger and bigger and bigger because they can, you know, they can they can take a little bit of their profit and reinvest it in growing or buying or building a bit more fiber and building a bit more infrastructure. But very rarely does anyone come along and create a brand new asset in this space because it's so hard to fund it. And that's really been the exciting thing that we've been able to do. How much capital have you guys raised for the business? So uh, a little over 250 million sterling. So yeah, like about 330 million US. 330. Okay, got it. And, and typically, like when you raise money for a company like this versus like the typical, you know, startups, you know, like how is the approach? 
what 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 are typically the expectations? How do you deal with that too? So uh, I'm not going to lie that that we did that in in 2020, and um, that was the hardest I've ever worked in my entire life. It was during COVID, um, and you know when you're selling a a 250 million pound investment, um, you know, people really want to do the due diligence and they want to do the, the, the due diligence on, on the plan and the team. Um, and they, they, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot riding on your ability to go and do something pretty insane. And, and the plan we had was on the face of it going to be very, very difficult to execute as well. Now for you guys, you know, like for the people that are listening to um, you know, it sounds like you guys have been in, 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 in rocketing mode. I mean, skyrocketing this thing, because I mean, in the, in, in the, in the last, uh, you know, few, I mean, in the last year or so, I mean, you guys have, you have, you have hired over 300 people. I mean, how do you go about doing that without things breaking too much, you know, when it comes to culture and things like that? Yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been quite a ride. Uh, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like I, I I often say like all the kind of most interesting problems. There's there's never like one thing. It's it's always a good solution is always made up of of probably probably a hundred little things that we do that we do well. But you know one of the one of the benefits we have is is the business was around for 15 years before that. So there's a lot of stuff that you you know that we worked out like before we before we went into that. We you know we had we've been working with difficult clients, we'd, we'd sorted out, you know, very demanding clients that meant that we needed, you know, high levels of compliance, we, you know, we'd done a lot of the kind of difficult, like ISO 27001 and, and other regulatory stuff. So, you know, a lot of the practices and the ways of doing things, we'd had a lot of time to think about and develop and, and, and kind of be very clear about who we were. I think where you see this go wrong, a lot of the time is it is a startup that's only been around two or three months, and then gets funding. And so there is no culture, there's no seed for the culture, right? There's, it, it sort of then grows in an uncontrolled way. Whereas I think we had a really, really strong and very uh, concentrated sense of, of our identity, you know, what matters, um, who we are kind of like morally and ethically as a business and, and where that sits. And so when you then come and inject a lot of capital, you actually have a, a, a seed that you can grow and, and, and that really carries forward. But I think one of the most important things we did, you know, shortly after, shortly after we, 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 we closed the, the fundraise, the leadership team, the kind of core team at that time, I sat them down and I said, if, if we do one thing well, it's, it's make sure that when we're done, we actually still want to work here. You know, we can, we can easily go out and hire, you know, the focus was that it was year one, we had to hire about 200 people, right? And, and so it was like, it, it is certainly possible to hire 200 people. What's hard is hiring 200 people that you want to work with. And so in a year's time, when you come to the office, you look around and go, yeah, I, I definitely still want to be here. And I think, I think saying that out loud made, made a huge difference for us. I think we, you know, we all took that really to heart because I think it is really easy to imagine that you could hire, you could hire a few hundred people and then make the place really alienating. Um, and and suddenly feel like you've diluted all of the stuff that was good. So I think we put a huge amount, uh, we put a huge amount of work into that. I think we've always hired on culture over skills. Um, you know, we're we sort of uh, semi-famously we're known for our 
for our no egos, no assholes hiring policy. Uh, we we sort of joke about it, but it but it is real, right? Like I don't care how good you are at your job if you can't play with the team, if you can't make people around you want to work with you, then then you won't succeed here. I love it. Now imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world team where the vision of Orbo is saying fully realized. What does that world look like? Pretty pretty amazing, I think. You know, we haven't covered too much of the background about about the way this is set up in the UK. But but as of at today, eighty percent of our market is served by one incumbent provider that that used to be the government owned monopoly. Um, we're we're challenging that, and we're challenging it hyper aggressively and with a very very uh, different methodology. So, I mean, monopolies. Are, are bad at several things, but one thing they're particularly bad at is innovation. And so, you know, on the surface level, you know, if we look at London and we look at businesses in London, you know, they, they appear to be doing fine. They all appear to be connected. They all have fiber, but it is a huge constraint for those businesses. So for us, success looks like getting into the majority of those businesses. COVID has particularly given us an opportunity to, to really have a bit of a winner takes all strategy and, and to just do better to provide way more bandwidth and to effectively remove that constraint. One of the examples we use a lot, most people that, that we talk to now, like in particular when we're selling, have unlimited data on their on their phones, right? You don't think about, you know, it's very easy to conceptualize like when you when you first kind of got unlimited data, you stopped thinking about your data usage. You stopped thinking about how many gigs of data you needed. And now you you go out and you can sit on the train and you can stream Netflix and you're not thinking what's it costing. Um, so we can conceptually, we can understand that, you know, you can go out and buy a car that does 140 miles an hour. You don't need it to do that, but it means you're never thinking, am I near the limit of how fast it can go? And I think we're not there with, with commercial connectivity, which is insane because it is technically completely possible to provide practically unlimited connectivity, i.e. it is technically completely possible to provide way more bandwidth than businesses need at essentially the prices they're already paying. But the history of our industry means that no one is incentivized to do that. And, and so businesses are suffering under these constraints. And particularly with the massive adoption of cloud, it just means, um, it means the whole economy is being held back. So we have this kind of on the one hand, insanely ambitious, but also very modest view that um, we're just going to be that that bit of infrastructure no one sees, that everyone in five years forgets about. And and what to really answer your question head on, probably the dream is people stop talking about bandwidth. They they it's just it's so abundant. It's just there in the same way that you don't question whether the electricity cable coming into your house is big enough. When you buy a new appliance, you don't scratch your head and go, do I have enough electricity? Like, it's never even crossed your mind, right? Um, and that's exactly how it should be with connectivity in, in our view. So I think moving the discussion away from that and into the world of unlimited, um, that's, that's really where we want to be. I love it. Now, you've been doing this for 17 years, Tim. That's quite some time. And um, full of lessons learned, right? And if I had the opportunity of putting you into a time machine, and I was able to bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment, you know, back in 2006, where you were thinking about a world where 
you know, Warbosch, you know, will really, you know, bring that uh, to cover that gap in the market. If you were able to sit that younger self and give your younger self, that younger Tim, one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I, you know, I actually think about this a lot. And partly, we employ a, an awful lot of young people here. So, that they're, you know, with 350 people, I think the average age is 28. So uh, a lot of people ask me uh, questions about starting the business, how it started, you know, and, and the hardest thing for me is, is, is the would you do it again? So I, I think uh, maybe it doesn't answer your question, but like, I think I would be very reticent to talk to me in 2006 because I'm pretty sure I would put me off. I think if I had known then how hard it was going to be, I think if I had any idea the amount of the amount of work and sacrifice and and difficulty and and as I say, you know I'm, it's worked out very well for me. Um, you know I've been extremely fortunate uh, financially. The paradox for me is if I look back over the last seventeen years, financially it has been a slam dunk. Like it definitely was the right thing to do, but. Right up until that moment where it's successful, it looks like a financially terrible decision. So it's kind of for every guy like me. The the problem is there's there's ten other people that weren't quite as lucky that did all the right stuff at all the right time, and just one one piece of luck didn't pan out. One thing didn't pan out, and I think that's the danger, right? Like you, you, to some extent, you know the. There, there is a good amount of, of luck and, and good fortune involved in these things. And, and if this was your strategy, if you would have backed 10 people, as you know, uh, you know, one makes it and nine don't. So, you know, it, I, it's a real paradox for me as to like whether, whether I would ever advise someone to take the course that I did. Um, but in terms of the one piece of advice I, I, I'd give myself, I think it was the most shocking thing for me was, was really understanding that there are no limits, that are so many limits that we have we impose on ourselves and and really to just dream to dream bigger right like i think i think i always felt like i had to just shoot for the next step the next increment and actually i think it would have been possible to accelerate faster had i had i really had the um the confidence to dream a little bit bigger and i think that's something that i'm still learning today is is how to how to unpack that and how to um, how to create really really massive uh, massive targets because actually my personality is such that if I fail to hit a target it doesn't it doesn't bother me but I need the big target I love that I love that Tim so for the people that are listening what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi uh, LinkedIn is is probably the the best way uh, you can find me on LinkedIn um, but uh, but also um, you can you can reach me uh, on my company email, which is uh, TC for Tim Kresic, TC at ballboss.com. Amazing. Well, hey, Tim, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.